Oh, welcome back to uh, the Hayek Auditorium at the Cato Institute for the 2019 Cato Surveillance Conference. Uh, I am still uh, Julian Sanchez, a senior fellow here, uh, and I'm pleased to welcome you for our uh, afternoon session of Flash Talks. Um, again, there's more fascinating stuff happening in the world of surveillance than uh, can be covered in uh, full-length panels, unfortunately, so uh, we are always glad to have uh, an impressive lineup of very smart folks to uh, address uh, that range of topics in our shorter flash talks. Um, to begin, uh, we've got Greg Nojime, uh, Senior Counsel uh, and Director of the Freedom, Technology and Security Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Um, you know, we, uh, it, it is a time when we hear a lot about uh, the, the goal of putting America first, but in uh, surveillance space, um, this often uh, creates some friction uh, with our allies when uh, our surveillance goals uh, may conflict uh, with their desire to protect the privacy of their own citizens. So uh, I'm happy to welcome to the stage for that uh, international perspective, Greg Nojan. Thanks, Julian, and hello, everyone. Again, I'm Greg Nojime with the Center for Democracy and Technology, www.cdt.org. Um, I want to talk about the global implications of what I call America first surveillance policy. And when I say America first, I often mean Americans first. Uh, US surveillance policy, particularly on the intelligence side of the equation, discriminates in favor of Americans and against foreigners in a fairly dramatic way when it comes to surveillance that occurs outside the United States. Inside the United States, it's actually relatively even between Americans and foreigners. Um, in both cases, when the government wants to surveil a person in the United States and collect their communications content uh, for intelligence purposes, it has to show that the person is an agent of a foreign power, an agent of an entity like a foreign terrorist organization or a foreign government. That requirement is a very high level of proof, probable cause, that the person is an agent of a foreign power. And it has to be done in front of a judge, in front of a judge um, in the super secret um, FISA court. But outside the United States, uh, international intelligence surveillance directed at foreigners doesn't have those protections. Um, if conducted under Executive Order 12333, there's no probable cause requirement, no requirement that the person be an agent of their government or of a foreign terrorist organization, and no judge making any determination at all. Um, any activities and intentions of a foreigner are fair game, and bulk collection, that means non-targeted collection, uh, is acknowledged internationally for foreigners who are using U.S. Uh, cloud providers. Um, it's the, the news isn't very much better. Uh, that surveillance is conducted under um, Section 702. You heard a lot about that on the last panel. Uh, suffice it to say, no probable cause, no determination that the target is an agent of a foreign power, and no judge is approving individual targets Judges approve programmatic um, surveillance based on these certifications, but there's no um, determination with respect to individual targets. Uh, 
and any information relevant to U.S. foreign policy or national security is fair game. So America First surveillance policies can dramatically impact the rights of foreigners because the standards are low and the U.S. government's ability to access communications is very high, especially relative to other countries. It's high in part because so many of the large providers are located in the United States. But America First also diminishes the rights of Americans. And I say that because we Americans communicate more than ever with foreigners who are abroad. Even our domestic-to-domestic communications can be routed abroad where they might be subject to these more permissive surveillance regimes. By targeting foreigners, the U.S. government collects communications of people in the United States intentionally, incidentally. Intentionally, incidentally. That means we intend to collect the communications of Americans who are communicating with foreign targets. And that's called incidental communication, but it is intended. Um, by targeting foreigners applying low standards, the U.S. government amasses a database of communications that includes many communications of Americans, and then it turns around and queries that data for Americans' communications without probable cause, without a determination that the American is an agent of a foreign power, and without judicial authorization. So the result of the America First surveillance policy is a diminution in the rights of Americans. Uh, by failing to extend even basic protections to the foreigners, we allow this database of communications to grow and grow quite huge, and it includes the communications of Americans uh, because uh, we often communicate with foreigners abroad and because some communications are collected in that database, even though they are domestic to domestic. So America First offers almost offers very little protection to foreigners, and it also diminishes the protections that would be um, otherwise uh, available to Americans. Now, I've talked about America First in the intelligence context, because that's where it's most pronounced. In the, criminal, in the context of criminal surveillance, where the government is actually investigating a crime, there hadn't been, until last year, a distinction between Americans and foreigners. Everybody got basically the same rights. Um, the Cloud Act, adopted in 2018, for the first time extended a version of America First to criminal sur surveillance. Under the agreement that the United States just entered into with the UK, the UK can compel disclosures of stored content and of content in real time under UK law, uh, which is more permissive than is US law, of all surveillance targets except for Americans and except for people physically present in the United States. That's really the first time that criminal surveillance laws have distinguished between Americans and everyone else. America first on the criminal side of the equation can have the same adverse effect on Americans that it does in the intelligence side. Uh, for example, under the Cloud Act, the UK can share back to the United States government 
communications that involve Americans that were incidentally collected when others were targeted. Uh, that sharing back is done without probable cause, without the intervention of a judge. Now, the next big test for whether we will continue to extend America first, which, as I've, as I've said, is not even protecting Americans, the next big test is going to be a treaty that's currently being negotiated between the United States, the Council of Europe, and other governments. That treaty is a protocol to an existing treaty called the Budapest Cybercrime Convention. This protocol is designed to permit cross-border demands for communications traffic data, think of an email log, for example, and for subscriber information. The theory of this, uh, of provision five of this protocol will be that parties who sign it will be required to give effect, those are the, that's the language of the current draft, to give effect to the orders issued by other signatory countries to this convention for traffic data and for subscriber information. So uh, this is not about content, it's for traffic data and for subscriber information. How would a country give effect to the foreign order? Well, the, the protocol says how it could do that. It could do that by accepting it as equivalent to a domestic order, by endorsing it, or by issuing its own legal process, which I presume would be based on facts that are provided by the foreign government. The U.S. could give effect to a foreign order to, for example, disclose a log of your email or your browsing history, I think, uh, based on a demand issued without judicial review from a Budapest Cybercrime Convention protocol signatory like Hungary, Turkey, Russia, Albania, or Ukraine. Ukraine, did I say Ukraine? <laughs> yes, Ukraine, it is a signatory to the Budapest Convention, uh, the Cybercrime Convention. Presumably it will sign the protocol to the Budapest Cybercrime Convention. A mile down the road from this conference, there is a big discussion among members of Congress about whether to remove from office the President of the United States because he attempted to list Ukraine in an effort to investigate his political rival, um, Joe Biden, through his son, Hunter Biden, who had a position on the board of directors of a uh, company in Ukraine. How would Ukraine investigate Hunter Biden? What would it do? More than half of criminal investigations today involve electronic evidence. One could presume that what the Ukraine would do, what Ukraine would do would be to seek email logs from Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden, presumably using a US provider, his email logs are stored by that provider and could become uh, available to the foreign government under the Budapest Convention. Today, even today, the providers can volunteer this information. Um, US law has a flaw. In my view, it's a flaw that permits foreign governments to obtain uh, even your email logs without there being any um, restriction except what the foreign government itself uh, applies. 
The issue with the Budapest Convention, though, is that it will give the foreign government a way to compel that information under the foreign government's laws. So if Ukraine wants Hunter Biden's email logs and both the United States and Ukraine sign the convention, unless the U.S. makes certain reservations, um, the Ukrainian order could be honored by the U.S. and it could compel the disclosure of um, the Biden email logs. I think that Congress is not going to allow this result. Based on its track record so far, Congress will uh, instead want to protect Americans and, based on its track record so far, throw the foreigners under the bus yet again. Uh, this is the same approach, the same approach, throwing the foreigners under the bus, that has also thrown Americans under the bus with them because the government then obtains these communications without having to go through the normal legal processes it would have to use if it, if it obtained them directly. That is, um, the government could choose to give effect to the foreign order by reserving the right to issue its own legal process under U.S. law for the lawyers in the audience, that's Section 2703D um, of Title 18, and it would have to go in front of a judge and show reasonable suspicion using U.S. processes to get the information sought by the foreign order. But the Budapest Convention currently doesn't prohibit discrimination. It doesn't prohibit the government to apply, apply that process for the Americans' data and a different process for foreigners' data, such as the process of simply honoring the foreign demand. Now, I, this is a, a problem that's going to be facing Congress next year or the year after when it is asked to ratify the Budapest Convention protocol. I think we need, um, we advocates and we people uh, who work at companies and folks who are interested in surveillance law need to be proactive on this. And we need to ensure that the Budapest Convention protocol requires equal treatment of data demands of foreigners and of nationals, and that it includes strong due process protections no matter what your nationality is. And it currently doesn't do that. So I want to leave you with this thought, uh, which is to beware the siren call of America first. It doesn't protect Americans, it doesn't put us first, and uh, it diminishes the rights of everyone. Thank you. Thanks very much, Craig. Uh, next up, uh, you know, if, you've, if you've debated issues of privacy and surveillance, you've probably heard uh, someone say something along the lines of, well, I don't know why I should be worried about this. I'm not worried that the government is going to investigate me without a good reason. Um, and if you've heard that, the person, uh, the person speaking was probably white. Um, because, as we know from our history, um, the burdens of inappropriate surveillance do not fall equally on all groups. And one of the reasons um, I think uh, Americans accept them is because they fall unequally on certain groups. Um, so we're going to hear a little bit about uh, the way uh, 
programs operating under the, the aegis of things like countering bias, violent extremism, um, work to, in fact, surveil um, specific communities that feel themselves, um, quite reasonably, uh, much more under scrutiny um, than uh, white Christian Americans with uh, middle-of-the-road political views. So I'd like to welcome to the stage a legal fellow uh, with Muslim advocates, uh, Nabiha Makbul. Hello, my name is Nabiha. I'm a legal fellow at Muslim Advocates. Muslim Advocates is a national civil rights organization ensuring the freedom of Americans of all faiths. Today, I'm going to talk about one surveillance program that we've been tracking. Imagine if where you go, what you say, how you feel is tracked on account of your faith and that the government could monitor you at schools, universities, houses of worship, hospitals, mental health visits. What if the government aggregated all of this data and made a determination about you? Welcome to Countering Violent Extremism, a government program that claims it can identify who will commit violence before it occurs by monitoring people's behaviors and flagging you across public resources and private spaces. So what if you frequent a mosque, discuss foreign policy, express sadness? Though these are not precursors to violence, this program will flag these acts. So where does one go to find a program like this? Not far. Welcome to Illinois. Illinois is just one grant recipient for a program that is designed to link the federal and local government to private entities in order to monitor individuals. The grantor, the Department of Homeland Security, recommends the program use a, quote, whole of government approach. This document is the program plan in Illinois. As you can see, according to their own materials, the, the state agency, the Illinois Criminal Justice Information Authority, the grantee, is, wants to link federal agencies, the FBI, DHS, the US Attorney's Office, to state agencies, the governor, and the Illinois Terrorism Task Force, and link it to other settings, educators, social service providers, mental health providers, faith and community groups. This isn't just happening in Illinois. Similar programs operate across the country in each of these locations. In just the past four years, there have been at least 57 grantees from the Department of Homeland Security alone, and these programs operate at every level of government. For anyone who may argue that these programs are somehow effective, they aren't. Our own government says so. In the public records that we've obtained from the US Attorney's Office that has evaluated these programs, the evaluation has looked at similar programs and what had happened. In one instance, they looked at a UK program called Prevent. In the UK, schools, prisons, medical providers, and local governments were mandated 
to report suspected radicalization. The result? Children under 18 were reported for normal behavior. There were ethical concerns regarding surveillance, and there was talk of potential repression of legal political dissent and speech. This August, Duke University's Triangle Center on Terrorism and Homeland Security also flagged the program's failure under the Obama administration because of vague goals, a lack of structure, and opposition from the Muslim American community. These programs don't work. They overcriminalize and they post huge surveillance concerns. So how did we get here? In 2009, the FBI's Office of Public Affairs and Community Relations developed a specialized community outreach team called a SCOP. A pilot program, it was meant to contact Somali communities in Minnesota. Its goal was to determine how much access the FBI had to the Somali community and to identify targeted contacts within the community. This underground intelligence gathering program morphed into a community partnership, the program we know today, in order to bolster these relationships between intelligence agencies and minority groups. Following this, in 2009, the FBI also designated additional communities of interest to deploy the Scott team, including Denver, Seattle, and Washington, DC. These are all sites of the current program we're discussing today. While the program uses facially neutral language, the racial and religious targeting are at its discriminatory roots. To this day, these programs continue to focus on Somali communities across the US. Muslim Advocates has been monitoring these programs since their origin as part of a pattern of surveillance faced by Muslim communities. Most of the information about these programs is not public. So in 2018, we submitted Freedom of Information Act and public records requests to 16 different agencies. What we found was an ever-expanding program with no checks in place. Take, for instance, Boston, where record requests from the Muslim Justice League and the Muslim Advocates found one program called the Youth and Police Initiative Plus, run by the Boston Police Department, claimed in their grant language that Somali youth were inherently violent and when left alone will commit violence. The Somali youth coordinator withdrew from the program due to concerns over discrimination. The program even drafted surveys the Somali youth was asked to see if their attitude after the program towards Muslim radicalization was negative or positive, very negative or very positive. Could you imagine if these survey questions were drafted for Christian or Buddhist youth? These programs target people due to their faith and their race. And yet, for such a flawed program, let's talk about how much funding they've received. Surveillance is expensive. Both in 2014 and in 2016, the Department of Homeland Security provided $10 million in grant funding. These types of programs receive funding from many other agencies, including the Department of Defense and the Department of Justice, in addition to local and state funding. So what kind of oversight follows these large grants? It's minimal. The documents that we found showed that at best, agencies and organizations that received grant funding had to submit about paragraph-long quarterly reports. 
There's no meaningful reporting or evaluation. There's also a complete lack of guidance on civil liberty or privacy protections. So we have to ask, where are these programs being operationalized? We found them in houses of worship. Here's one guide developed in Montgomery County, Maryland on how to implement the program at, among other places, mosques. These programs operate in schools. In 2017, the Denver Police Department had a grant application that stated they would focus on school-aged children, particularly refugee students, because of their risk of, quote, radicalization. Our investigation revealed a more innocuous program that consisted mostly of after-school mentoring. And the Denver police has since disavowed this original grant language, recognizing that it does harm to communities. But big rhetoric is what gets the funding. Law enforcement also gets funding. For the Illinois program, the state agency worked with multiple FBI agents, corresponded with the Chicago Police Department's gang intelligence unit, provided funding to the Illinois police, and had plans to collaborate with ICE. Here is some draft agreements that they had for something they call a shared responsibility committee. A shared responsibility committee is where the FBI would flag and refer individuals for special monitoring by their own community. Again, no protections for civil liberties or privacy were included in this draft agreement. This program operates in the context of mental health providers. The University of Illinois offered continuing medical education credits for mental health providers on how to implement the program in their context by flagging behaviors and warning signs. I find this particularly egregious as this is a vulnerable site for many individuals. This program operates online. There are attempts to track and filter online content. The program has deigns to try to incorporate information like cross-border travel. Injecting this program into every setting is not a bug, it's a feature. This document that you can see here is from the program's early iteration, and it demonstrates the blueprint. The plan was always to link private spaces and behaviors to government agencies. The program continues. It is routinely repurposed by members of both political parties. Just this year, we've seen three different Democratic presidential candidates propose the program and additional funding for it. William Barr released a Department of Justice memo proposing this program to address mass shooters, calling it, quote, early engagement. In her plan to address white nationalism, Elizabeth Warren disavowed the program and within the same plan, repurposed a version of the program to enact, quote, early intervention to address white nationalism. Regardless of who this program is deployed against, it's another effort to justify pre-crime intervention. In an era where information sharing is easier and faster than ever before, what does it mean to bring together junk markers and focus them on small groups of people? This program is just another boondongle in a long run of flawed and failed counterterrorism campaigns deployed across the US. No matter how many times the program is tried, it doesn't work and it doesn't get better. The program continues to target Muslim and minority communities. That's its very foundation. The programs continue to erode civil liberty and privacy protections for all people. 
And the program continues to expand the authority and reach of intelligence and law enforcement agencies, allowing them to become more entrenched in community settings. And the program needs to be dismantled. We at Muslim Advocates continue to investigate these programs and remain opposed to them. Communities have the right to know what government programs operate within their spaces. We have a lot more to say and more coming up. Follow us to learn more about what we've been uncovering. Thank you. Thanks so much, Nabiha. Um, coming up next, uh, we have uh, Chip Gibbons, Policy and Legislative Counsel from Defending Rights and Dissent. Uh, he's going to be talking about a uh, new report from his group on uh, the enduring history of uh, FBI abuse of power um, and its implications for the First Amendment, um, uh, both the, the bad old days and some worrying uh, trends today. Um, that and, and various other uh, papers related to uh, some of this afternoon's flash talk are on a uh, table outside by uh, the registration desk, so uh, do be sure to take a look at those if you want the, uh, the deeper dive on some of what you're hearing today. Uh, thank you so much to the Cato Institute for having me, and thank you for everyone in the audience who is watching and everyone who's watching on C-SPAN 2 and on the live stream. Uh, if you're not in the audience and you heard that announcement about the report being in the lobby and really want a copy, uh, you can go to rightsindescent.org slash FBI dash spying and find either the PDF or if you're like me and really like hard copies, can order a print version of it. Um, the name of the report is Still Spying on Dissent, the Enduring Problem of FBI First Amendment Abuse. And as the name would indicate, both by the still spying as well as the enduring problem, that this is a continuous problem, it's not a new one, and it's been with us for a long time. So what does it mean that we have this long history of FBI political surveillance? Well, at a certain point, we no longer start to treat these types of revelations as exceptional. They either become very normalized or they become very sort of almost invisible. You know, conversely, if you talk to activists, they'll make jokes like, oh, we know the FBI spy on us, or oh, we know someone's infiltrating us. They, they treat it as normal. On the other hand, because it's not exceptional and therefore not always newsworthy, people who should know better will not even realize it's going on. Uh, a few years ago, I was accompanying a uh, gentleman from an anti-war group who had been spied on and infiltrated by the FBI to meet with congressional offices. And we were asking for Congress to investigate that surveillance as well as the surveillance against Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter. I won't say what office we were in, but the representative was very concerned about the Fourth Amendment, very concerned with the, with the NSA, and the staffer we were talking to was very up on those issues. And we, we went through the whole presentation and laid out all of the facts, and, and the staffer just said to us, I had no idea the FBI still did that. Um, so it's, it's sort, of, sort of perverse. On the one hand, the fact that it's an enduring problem means we accept it as normal, or on the other hand, People who should know better act like it's no, doesn't realize it's going on. And I think one of the reasons we wrote the report is to push back on this narrative we see. There's a lot of bad narratives uh, in the media about the FBI. But one in particular I find troubling, which is when we treat these instances of abuse as isolated, 
incidents. So when we are so lucky that someone in the mainstream media will cover an FBI abuse, they'll be like, oh, the FBI visited Standing Rock water protectors, or oh, new documents show the FBI spot on Occupy Wall Street. But they never say, hey, today we learned the FBI was knocking on the doors of water protectors. Last month, we found out they were knocking on the doors of Palestine solidarity activists. And last year, we discovered that they were spying on Occupy Wall Street, indicating that the problem is widespread, severe, systemic, and part of a 110-year political tradition on behalf of our friends in the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Um, so by putting together all of these different incidents since 2010, and, and the reason we picked 2010 is not just because it's the end of the decade, though that would have been a good reason to do so, but because in 2010, the OIG for the Department of Justice released a report called A Review of the FBI Monitoring of Certain Domestic Advocacy Organizations. As you can tell, since they got the more um, exciting title, we had to settle for the more banal title of, of still spying on dissent. Um, but that's the last time there's been an official review of FBI spying. And that review covers the Bush era, released in 2010, but covers, covers the Bush era. And just four days after the OIG released that report, the FBI was raiding the homes of anti-war and Palestine solidarity activists across the Midwest. So... What's happened since 2010? What do we know about? We know that before the first protester ever set foot in Zakati Park, the FBI was monitoring Occupy Wall Street. We know that the FBI was monitoring Black Lives Matter as early as Ferguson, and extremely disturbingly, they have come up with an intelligence assessment about the threat of black identity extremism. And the logic behind this assessment is extraordinarily insidious. It says that if African Americans are upset about police violence, police racism, and social injustice, they may engage in lethal retaliatory violence against police, and police should be aware of this terror threat. And we know through other leaked documents, they created an entire program called Iron Fist. Think about that name for a minute. Iron Fist to quote-unquote, mitigate the threat of black identity extremism. And what that argument is saying is that not only is it that First Amendment protected political expression is some sort of precursor to criminality, but people by being rightfully upset at social injustices that are pervasive in our society, that they experience, they endure, they should, that is a precursor to crime. Um, other things we know about is they were at Standing Rock, they've visited a bunch of um, uh, anti-pipeline protesters, they've been visiting the homes of Palestinian solidarity activists, and I also spent about five years pursuing a FOIA request and lawsuit against the FBI in relationship to their surveillance of pro-Palestine groups that hopefully you'll be hearing about more about later this month. Um, we know that they were at Occupy and Abolish ICE. We know they've been at pretty much every – they've visited proponents of Cuban normalization at their homes and asked them questions. So we know that pretty much every major political movement of the last decade, the FBI has been there watching, monitoring, surveilling, and in some cases engaging in disruptive uh, tactics I'll talk about later. So – Although the report is about 2010 to the present, I hope you'll permit me to go back in time just a few years uh, to 1908, 
which is when the FBI was founded, while Congress was on recess. And to this day, the FBI has no congressional charter, no legislative charter, which is something that's been consistently very vexing to civil libertarians like myself. Uh, in 1919, uh, J. Edgar Hoover's name was not yet on a building, but he was getting his start at the then Bureau of Investigation in what was originally called the Radical Division, not because they were radical, but because they were spying on radicals, and what was later renamed the General Intelligence Division. And I know this seems like ancient history, it's 100 years ago, but there's some really important things to extrapolate from this. First of all, this is not abnormal. It's not just Hoover is a, a weird guy. Sometimes histories of surveillance will get very personalized about him. I mean, different police departments around the country were developing what were called red squads, which, like the radical division, were also intelligence divisions. Which brings me to my second uh, part of the equation, which is that the FBI is not only a law enforcement agency, and in theory, law enforcement is about gathering uh, evidence that can be used to prosecute a crime we can dispute whether or not that's what they really do or not, but that's, that's the theory, but also about intelligence, which is far more permissive and far more broad. And that so you have this trend of people who think that it's valid for police to have intelligence divisions like the Red Squad, like the General Intelligence Division, to track you know, labor unrest, anarchists, socialists, and other sort of undesirables, and that Hoover comes out of that tradition and then becomes the director of the FBI. When he's at the General Intelligence Division, he is responsible for the Palmer Raids, which if you're ever nominated for FBI director, which I'm sure one of you will be, uh, they're going to ask you, hopefully, uh, has the FBI ever um, violated any civil liberties? And if you're like the last couple of directors, you'll say, yes, the Palmer raids and spy on MLK. Like, that's how bad the Palmer raids are considered to this day, that every candidate for, like, FBI directorship goes, oh, Palmer raids are bad. Uh, nothing recent they ever cite, though. Wonder why that is. Um, and then in 1924, the Attorney General, this is 1924, the Attorney General Harlan Fisk Stone is disturbed that the FBI is engaged in political spying, so he puts limitations on them, which is he meets with Hoover, he makes Hoover meet with the head of the ACLU, who Hoover is secretly spying on. Um, that's another issue. And, and they come up like, well, can you show us a statute where it's against the law to be a communist? Hoover's like, no. And they say, we're going to limit the FBI to only investigating violations of the federal criminal code. Hoover finds ways to get around that. But the important thing is that in the 1930s and 1940s, Franklin Delano Roosevelt puts forward a series of executive orders that gives the FBI national security, non-law enforcement powers, which Hoover interprets as giving him a broad mandate to police subversive thought. And they use this to develop what's called the custodial detention list in 1939, which is literally a list of people to be detained in the event of a national emergency. Um, Attorney General Francis Biddle discovers this and says, what? A uh, secret list of people to be detained. You've got to get rid of this. So Hoover did, you know, uh, he changed the name, the security index. Oh, I'm technically complying. We don't have the custodial detention list. We just have the security index now. And later, attorney generals found out about the list and were fine with it. But in this instance, Hoover is told to get rid of the list, and he just changes the name. And and we, we shouldn't just treat the threat of, of detention as sort of a, a very abstract threat. I know it sounds very sort of 
conspiracy theorist, but it's in the church committee report. But we, we found out that in 1950, 12 days after the Korean War, Hoover met with Truman and asked him to put 12,000 people in military detention camps who he thought were threats to the national security. Uh, Truman said no, he would not do this. But the list continued. Um, and at the height of the security list, it had 26,174 people on it. Uh, that's not the only list. There's a reserve index, which is the people who are dangerous but not dangerous enough for the security list. And there's clear evidence that the FBI would sort of finesse the numbers when reporting them to the AG by taking people off the security index and putting them on the reserve index or putting them on the this index or, or the that index. But the point is there's a lot of indexes. Um, and historians have pointed out that what Hoover does is he takes these indexes and uses them not for mass detention, but turns them into a tool for mass political surveillance. And by 1960, the FBI, between all the indexes, has opened 430,000 files on allegedly subversive groups and individuals. So it is mass political surveillance. Whenever we talk about FBI political surveillance, we usually talk about COINTELPRO or counterintelligence program. Either it's something that happened in the bad old days or whenever there's a new instance of FBI surveillance, people say, oh, it's COINTELPRO 2.0. People have been saying that since the investigations of Ronald Reagan's um, foreign policy opponents in the 80s. So by my count, we're on like COINTELPRO like 70.0. But I think it's really important not to conflate COINTELPRO with surveillance because, as the Church Committee said, counterintelligence is a misnomer. This is a domestic covert action, and these are the Church Committee's findings, not mine, um, though I agree with them, um, to protect the status quo. And somebody in the audience earlier today mentioned the murder of Fred Hampton, who was killed by the Chicago police uh, 50 years ago, earlier this week, that was a police raid that was set up by the COINTELPRO operation. And what it's about is that in 1956, Hoover is convinced the Supreme Court is too liberal. He cannot prosecute people under criminal law whose views he does not like. So he has to have a program to neutralize and disrupt speech that is perfectly legal by the very nature of COINTELPRO. This is lawful speech that he deems threatening and wants to get rid of. So that's what COINTELPRO is about. It starts with the communist. It goes into the civil rights movement, the Socialist Workers Party. Uh, there's a COINTELPRO against the Ku Klux Klan, which is kind of a, a tricky bag that I'm not going to talk about because you could go on all day about it. Uh, the Klan informant for the FBI testified during the church committee, and he did not want his, uh, his face on TV, so they gave him a disguise. The disguise was a white thing with, with holes in the eyes. It's very jarring. And it, it clashed with his maroon suit, too. Um, so all around, bad choices. But, you know, we have the church committee reforms, and you'll oftentimes hear this narrative like, yes, there was bad stuff in the Hoover era, and then 9-11 happened, and they got too zealous about terrorism. So there's this mythical era of, like, the reformed FBI. But one of the biggest FBI spying scandals was their surveillance of the committee in solidarity with the people of El Salvador, a group that opposed what Ronald Reagan was doing in Central America, to the point where the Senate Intelligence Committee didn't have a hearing about it. They had an entire investigation and released a report, the FBI and CISPIS. The GEO had to look at this incident. Like, it was a huge incident. And this is in the 80s. And then in, in the early 90s, in the run-up to the Gulf War, the FBI is visiting the homes of Arab Americans 
asking them their views on the potential U.S. war in the Gulf, asking them, of course, their views on Palestine, a reoccurring theme. And, and so the idea that there was a reformed FBI that wasn't engaged in political surveillance, it's, it's, it's not true. I'm just going to, if anyone believes that, I'm sorry to hurt your feelings. It's not true. Um, but 9-11 does come, and they get new powers. So during the church committee, the main recommendation was that to impose, as I mentioned earlier, a statutory charter on the FBI. That doesn't happen because the attorney general issues guidelines, which are basically self-regulating. And because of that, later attorney generals could make the guidelines less protective of civil liberties. The current guidelines put in place in 2008 by George Bush's lame duck attorney general weeks before Obama came into office allow for the first time since the church committee the FBI to investigate people without factual predicate of criminal activity or national security threat. The two categories of investigations are literally assessments and predicated investigations. Predicated means having a factual predicate. Uh, Let that sink in. Um, And then, of course, there's the Patriot Act. And we know that they're up to all of these different things during the Bush years. They're spying on anti-war activists. They're spying on Greenpeace. They're spying on PETA. And in 2006, Congress asked the OIG... To, to look into this, and in 2010, they issued the report, and, and the report is often cited as being very critical of the FBI, but it also, in a lot of ways, illustrates how loose some of the guidelines are. For example, they were discussing whether or not it was okay for the FBI to engage in a counterterrorism investigation of the Catholic worker movement, and the uh, OIG was like, well, somebody threw red paint at, at a military base and damaged a window, and then they sent a, a letter saying, this is for the people of Iraq who suffered under Saddam and now must suffer under the occupation, and the OIG was like, well, that's, you know, the red paint is a use of force or violence, and the letter shows it's for a political end. Uh, use of force or violence for a political end is terrorism. So it was totally proper to investigate these nonviolent people as terrorists. And I think that's a really important thing to remember when the FBI comes on television and tells you they do not have enough tools to investigate white supremacists or any other type of terrorist you know, activity. Because when it comes to Quakers and anti-war activists, they always find a way and they always find a reason. They have plenty of tool. So given that this problem is ongoing, I think that we shouldn't just accept it as normal and we shouldn't be surprised that it's still going on. What we need is really important reforms to put the FBI in check. Um, We have recommendations at the end of the report, and I will concede that even if all of them are put in place, we wouldn't instantaneously solve the problem. It's a long-term struggle. But I think the biggest one is trying to rein in the FBI's investigative powers to limiting them to situations where they have reason to suspect criminal activity, which which, doesn't sound that radical, but it actually really is. Um, And thank you very much for listening to my presentation. Uh, thank you to everyone watching on C-SPAN 2, and I hope everyone takes a report. And if you're watching online, please go to rightsanddissent.org slash FBI dash spine. Easy to remember, and get your PDF or hard copy. Thanks so much, Chip. Um, next up... Um, 
So uh, those of you uh, uh, with a little bit of French may, may know that surveillance actually um, it comes from surveillance to, to watch from above. Uh, in a sense, surveillance oversight is etymologically speaking, redundant. Um, and you, you can't get much more uh, uh, watchy from above than, uh, than uh, with satellites. The uh, um, orbital, uh, uh, orbital entity is capable increasingly of tracking us um, and increasingly in collaboration uh, with the much closer little tracking devices we keep in our pockets. Um, the combination of that uh, monitoring from very close up and monitoring from above uh, is the topic of a fantastic paper um, authored uh, by three, three authors, but uh, one of them is here with us, Anne Toomey McKenna, who is a distinguished scholar of cyber law and policy at uh, Penn State Dickinson Law and the Penn State Institute for Computational and Data Sciences. Um, we should have a stack of these out there. I will recommend it to everyone. It is um, it's a hefty but uh, re uh, amply repays study uh, analysis of uh, what Professor McKenna calls the uh, data nexus uh, at, the, at the intersection of these two technologies. Um, uh, we've uh, allotted her a little bit more time because this is uh, something that requires uh, a bit more exploration. Uh, please welcome uh, Anne McKenna. Good afternoon. Thank you to the Cato Institute. And there is a lot of research in this paper. Um, so I really want to thank my co-authors who couldn't be here today, uh, Dickinson Law's academic dean, Amy Godion, and Penn State's Institute for Computational and Data Sciences director, Jenny Evans, who is also a professor of meteorology at Penn State. Uh, none of this would be possible without Penn State Dickinson Law's research um, support. And so I'm excited to talk to you about these things. And I think I'm going to start the, with sort of a case study, really, a story that might jog your memories. It happened last year. But it really starts with, you know, as Julian pointed out, what, what, what comes from these things like a phone, a Fitbit, and what happens when they get combined with a satellite. And so we can get some really cool things. And one of the places we saw that was Strava. And Strava is like Facebook for athletes. It's a fitness app. And Strava gave us this global heat map. And they did that by aggregating the data from Fitbits and wearable devices, from your cell phones, and satellite data. And so understanding how much data here, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's the, the content, like just to, to the data that's involved, five terabytes of data. That's as much data as the Hubble telescope generates in six months. And Strava, this only cost them a couple hundred dollars in computing processing costs. So very easy to access data. So shortly after Strava publishes its global heat map, which is tracking and showing all the Strava users everywhere around the world, we get this tweet from a 20-year-old Australian student. Right? Strava released its global heat map. Cool, but not so cool for operations that uh, require you know, secrecy. Um, so. New York Times picks it up. Really, the story overnight blows up. We have a national security crisis. What's interesting is, you know, in, in looking at this, and in, in the New York Times reported, the Pentagon had actually given some of its soldiers Fitbits. They wanted to encourage soldiers to exercise. And so Fitbits encouraged that. Strava, really this platform for supreme athletes, allowed bases around the world, forward operating of bases, to be identified overnight, create, you know, just creating immediate risk, threat of harm to our armed forces. Um, and so I, in looking at this, 
My background is electronic surveillance law. I um, have co-authored since 1995 uh, a really large treatise on electronic surveillance law called Wiretapping and Eavesdropping with a professor over at Catholic University, Cliff Fishman. If you have insomnia, it's really good for it. Um, but it, you know, when I was looking at Strava and how this happened and the satellite data and where did the, the, the data that went into this global map come from and how wasn't there some sort of shutter control here with the satellite images, I just, putting this together, I, I was struggling and I realized I know so little about this information nexus. So reaching out and working with my colleagues, Amy Godion and Jevin, Jenny Evans, we really tried to put this together. And we, we came up with this term, satellite smart device information nexus. And, and we'll, I'm going to spend a little bit of time going through that and, and talking about how do we get here? How does this work? What, you know, what, what comes about this? And when I was looking into this, I realized there's this really marked gap in the literature right, in privacy law literature, space literature. Space attorneys stay at a, tend to stay in their lane. Privacy law scholars were, you know, we heard from EPIC today, EPIC's general counsel, um, talking about location tracking, and he gave us a great primer in that. That'll save me some time later. But in looking at this and, and, and seeing this, I was like, well, how do we regulate satellite data that's done by private companies? You know, we know we'll talk a little bit about, or I'll talk a little bit about our electronic surveillance scheme in, in the US. But I was realizing that this made me realize smart devices, our phones, our Fitbits, even social media, it operates off the backbone of satellite data. And so we had a lot of questions. How do satellites work? What types of them are there? Who can own them? How do they work together with smart devices? Who regulates satellites? Is this all government? Is this private entities, how this go on? What laws apply? Who can access it? What do the courts say about satellite data? Again, I've been reading, writing, and researching and practicing electronic surveillance law for decades. And I was like, hmm, I haven't really come across what do courts do with commercial remote sensing data? So I'm just starting with just a basic overview. How do satellites work? They work very similar to the human eye, right? Like, direct sensing is when we touch something. You know, we can touch it, it's physically there. Remote sensing is different. Remote sensing is, it, it occurs, it's the process of acquiring information about our surroundings without being in contact with those surroundings. That's what the human eye does, that's what satellites do. Different satellites have different sensors with different purposes. This is just an example of different kinds of satellites. We have geostationary satellites, geosynchronous satellites, semi-synchronous satellites, and they all serve different purposes, right? They give us different altitudes, some stationary satellites, helpful because it's a consistent image over time. So you see the same space, the same place on Earth consistently. And so you can look for changes. You could look for troop movements. You could look for many things. But satellites and the presence of satellites is rapidly increasing and so is how satellites work together with smart devices. So in trying to figure that out, we all have heard about the GPS tracking cases, right? And, and, and how GPS works. And so every smart device has a GPS chip in it. And it's based upon the US GPS, the US Global Positioning Satellite. The US was really first in the market there because it made its GPS satellite system publicly available really before any other country did. And when the US did that, what it guaranteed was a place in the market for its GPS chip. So if you want a device to use GPS location service, you need that GPS chip that is consistent and works with US GPS um, satellites. 
And so all of our Fitbits, our smart devices, they have these GPS chips in them. They're tiny. They're, um, you know, they are how it works. And the GPS system, it's right, at any time you are, you know, a chip is connecting with satellites, identifying where the satellites are and using multiple data from satellites to say this is precisely where I am. But the GPS chips work with sensors in our smart devices. And the sensors are pretty remarkable. These MEM sensors or microelectromechanical systems, they're tiny, they're silicon based. Um, and, and these tiny, tiny sensors um, give us assisted GPS, which is incredibly precise. You know, we, we heard from earlier today about location tracking and, and how cellular tracking works through triangulation. So assisted GPS is really kind of using, harnessing the power of the cell phone as well as the GPS satellite system. But these MEM sensors and smart devices, they're in all kinds of devices. And they're, it's remarkable the kinds of sensors that can be embedded because look how tiny MEM sensors are. If you look at this, you know, diagram here and you see where a MEM sensor is in relation to nanotechnology, in relation to the size of a red blood cell, these devices can be put in anything. Right? They're in sensors all the time. And one thing that should really be up there, we see health and fitness sensors, automobile sensors, home and electricity sensors, employee employment place sensors, smartphone sensors. We should also have a box up there for toy sensors. More and more toys are built with these MEM sensors in them, with GPS tracking trips. So remember, all of this is working off of satellites and commercial remote sensing satellites. Even shopping carts have these sensors built into them. So this is from a patent application filed by Walmart, right? Biometric data sensors in Walmart's patent application for biometric feedback shopping cart handle. I don't know about you, but when I go to Walmart, I don't want Walmart to know my heart rate. But what's interesting, and we'll get to that in a second, is how is this being regulated? What's happening? So yes, look here, heart rate, temperature, force against the handle, cart speed, location. It's all, it's all, again, working with the backbone of satellites, GPS, and these MEM sensors, right? And so, you know, in, in terms of why this happens, the satellite smart device information nexus in action, the Strava situation was exactly that. It was data, including movement, from device sensors. And, and so when we think about that kind of movement, you know, very precise GPS data from smart device and phone chips, and then remote sensing imagery from satellites merged together. And, and that's what we get, right? So when we think about that, what's interesting about the Strava um, situation is it revealed, and, and I think I should be really clear, Strava was doing nothing wrong. Strava broke no laws. Strava is giving the users what they want, right? That this, pro this product, I think what we're gonna, you know, what, what we realize from this is, is how little understanding we all have from a regulatory perspective, from a national security perspective, um, from a privacy scholar perspective, from a civil liberties perspective about the role of satellites interacting with smart devices and geospatial data and how geospatial data is used. The other piece of Strava was the social media data, right? We are constantly interacting with social media. People have been tweeting all day, and myself included, about the cool things we're hearing at this conference. When we're tweeting, our tweet has a geolocation tag in the metadata associated with that tweet. That is public information that anybody can scrub off of Twitter. 
right? But all of this is coming together. So my question as an electronic surveillance um, background and working with cyber law and privacy law was, again, how do we regulate satellites and realizing the active role of commercial remote sensing satellites, right? Com satellites being run by private companies. How is that regulated? And so one thing is outer space is the global commons, right? That, that idea, um, this comes from international treaties, concepts, is that it's there for everybody, right? We want the global commons to be peaceful, exploration of space to be peaceful. We don't want claims of sovereignty, although recent tweets from our president <laughs> are changing that. Um, so when we looked at this, so when we were like, okay, where does this come from? Domestic legal regimes about satellites really are related to licensing and compliance, safety and security, and of course, the national security implications. But the domestic electronic surveillance scheme isn't part of it, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. But it was really Byzantine. It's Byzantine to figure out where do I go to figure out what satellite companies, companies that are operating commercial remote sensing satellites, can do with data? How do I figure out what's legal and what's not legal? That's a tough thing to figure out. And it's tough to even figure out what kind of data is being collected and how it's being collected. So one of the things that I found really interesting was, I was like, okay, well, who in the US regulates commercial remote sensing satellites? I was like, FCC, who could it be? Well, it's the weather people, NOAA. At least that's what I was thinking of when I thought of NOAA, and I know many people. So I was like, NOAA regulates satellites. That's fascinating. When we presented this paper at the Privacy Law Scholars Conference in um, Berkeley this year, we had this great commenter who was a former Department of Commerce attorney. He did not know that NOAA regulated commercial remote sensing. And an attorney from the Department of Commerce didn't know it. It's not a very well-known thing. Who here knew that? Who knew? So, Noah, think about it. We know they make charts. We can understand why Noah clearly is using satellites, integral to weather prediction, climate analysis, and that clearly has national security implications. And they give us these charts that sometimes get marked up by Sharpies. But, you know, I, I was thinking, okay, so what about other laws regulating commercial remote sensing? And there's no federal legislation that directly regulates commercial remote sensing. It just, uh, and I was like, all right, because we don't, we don't have um, any kind of location tracking, privacy um, a regulation for companies and their activities. I'm going to talk a little bit about the legislation we do have in place, um, but again, no federal legislation that directly regulates private industries tracking of and data aggregation from individuals via the satellite smart device information nexus. Hawaii passed legislation to regulate this, but the governor vetoed that legislation. So what do we have? We have the robust Electronic Communications Privacy Act, where Congress clearly protected the privacy of oral, electronic, and wire communications of Americans. We know, we heard again of that great overview from Alan Butler this morning, taking us through laws and how tracking laws work and um, how information can be accessed. But again, satellites and satellite data, the commercial remote sensing is done in outer space. What's fascinating is the regulatory process though. And I'll talk more about how that's handled and why that can be a little bit problematic. Um, so 
when I was looking at this, I thought, we know there's some bills in Congress right now about regulating geolocation data to protect it, right? It's a big point. And, and part of the problem is just regulating geolocation data is not enough because different satellites contain different sensors for different purposes. So different sensors equal different information. Part of the confusion in how this is addressed from a privacy law standpoint is actually our court decisions. And there's this disconnect here, just very, um, not to repeat, um, Alan again went over this this morning, but warrantless use of a GPS tracking chip or a tracking device is unlawful, right? Warrantless use of historical cell site location data, unlawful. Warrantless use of a thermal imaging device to view inside a house, unlawful. Aerial surveillance. Warrantless use of a helicopter to take photographs of private property, lawful. Warrantless use of airplanes to take photographs of private property, lawful. So we have this, this disconnect. Aerial surveillance is fine. Camera surveillance in public faces, fine. Yet the disconnect is satellites can sense heat. Satellites can operate in the way and get the same information that a thermal imaging device can get. We've looked at satellites that regulate temperature. So we have this disconnect in our courts. We have a robust domestic electronic surveillance privacy law scheme, but it does not apply at all to satellites. So, so where do we go from there? And how are satellites really regulated? Why is this creating such privacy and civil liberties concerns? Well, NOAA does regulate satellites. They have an Office of Commercial Remote Sensing Affairs. That, there's a robust marriage between commercial remote sensing and the US government. And part of that licensing pro process is actually part of the problem. The licensing process is not public, and I'll talk you know, about why is that a problem. So when we think about you know, this warrantless use of satellites. Is it, where are we hearing about when satellite data is used and, and, and what do we hear about it? The interesting thing is because it falls outside the scope of our domestic laws and regulations for electronic surveillance, it's not addressed by that, what, what's occurring is not happening in public. One thing that is required by NOAA and you know, when we look at regulations of satellites, we know satellites are regulated both internationally and nationally. At the domestic regime for satellite regula regulation though is focused on safety, security, and then promoting commercial remote sensing activities. Why do we want to com promote commercial remote sensing activities? Because it's incredibly valuable information, and if we harness the you know, technology and, and development efforts of private industry in commercial remote sensing, it's a benefit for the US government. So the privacy and civil liberties concerns should be pretty apparent. I think we, we you know, can all sort of sense that here. But we have these the satellite-based information systems and sensors that have merged into this information nexus. No federal regulations, and our jurisprudence permits aerial surveillance, um, and it, it's connected, it's disconnected, separated from location tracking jurisprudence. And so what do we do with that? How do we address that? We also know it's a persistent and growing national security concern. 
That was illustrated by the Strava app. Strava was not alone in this. The fitness app, Polar, exposed locations of spies and military personnel. And so when we look at what happens, it's identifying secret bases, it's revealing military patrol and supply, it's revealing identities and locations of individuals, and this problem extends beyond military personnel, right? It is interconnected with the privacy and civil liberties concerns that I've talked about. So part of how we dismissed or missed the national security threat is that we were focusing on malicious state actors, right? We were focusing on Russia and China. What were their developments in satellite and space advances? We've been focusing on cyber threats to our satellite systems and on physical destruction, right? Collisions of things that could happen, both accidental and intentional. And I've talked a little bit about this, but we have this very disjointed and cumbersome regulatory regime when it comes to satellites. Um, so, we, we have some rec recommendations here. And the first is to increase the Space Objects Registry transparency. The Space Objects Registry regist registers all satellites globally. And, and all that really is required is that satellites, you know, the, the location, the orbital heights, levels, things like that for, for safety. Um, the, the entity, the government um, that is operating the satellite or the company that's lost operating the satellite and the location from which it's being launched. And that's really related to liability. The country from which the satellite is launched tends to bear the liability or will bear the liability. But this part about making public the commercial remote sensing licensing process, it's remarkable that the licensing, licensing process through NOAA, while it requires many things, including the data that's gonna be collected um, how the data is collected, where the data is stored, what the company, who the company is, all of those things. We don't have any um, public information provided about that. For, for sort of under the guise of the national security framework, we don't reveal that information. So it's remarkable if we think about these are companies, they have a commercial remote sensing satellite, multiple satellites. There's several few, that are a few big players in here, like Digital Globe. Um, and they're providing the information to the US military. And they're aggregating this data from our devices. They're aggregating data from the satellites, multiple kinds of satellites, and performing geospatial analysis. If you want to you know, just go check out Digital Globe's website, it's really fascinating. It's, hey, we can extract we can extract insights from this geospatial data. We can perform geospatial analysis and tell you who's at your competitor's store, who's where, when, and why. And so we're looking at satellites that, because of the advances in technology, they are, in fact, enabling real-time location tracking. And yet, that information and part of the licensing requir requirements requires that the US government have control over commercial remote sensing actors and commercial remote sensing satellite data. And so we're spending time hearing about surveillance today, lots of focus on surveillance of particular groups. Satellites are a fundamental part of this. We hear and we see in the bills in Congress right now, efforts to protect privacy, or at least give us a better balance at a federal level with privacy law, but we don't see satellites being addressed as part of this. And it's a void that is astonishing. And, and to, the, to the cynical in the room, probably Chip would, uh, might think this for sure, it is 
it is, is it intentional? Because we have an open stream between commercial remote sensing companies, commercial remote sensing data, and US government. And that is outside of our regular domestic electronic surveillance law. So something, you know, really, how do we address this? And so part of that is making public the commercial remote sensing licensure process. And that would be making public about what data is being collected, how is the data being used, to whom is the data being disseminated, how long is the data being retained. We hear about that, about other kinds of data and data aggregation. But missing from that piece is this geospatial data that is, again, collecting and using lots of our information. Another piece of this is the international component. Uh, we are in truly a, a space race. We have so many satellites going into space, both from commercial actors and from governments. You know, when I'm talking about the US GPS system, it's important to understand Europe has its own GPS system, Galileo. Russia has its own GPS system, GLONASS. Different, um, you know, countries, China is leading the way with launching satellites right now. Um, so in terms of, you know, future international discussions, we have uh, these questions about when we're engaged in remote sensing of other countries. That's a problem that we need to have some um, discussions about. But just like we see right now, these concepts of data that we're having, these discussions about data that we're having because the EU enacted its general data protection regulation, right, and how that's affecting data that's aggregated and collected. One other piece of this that we see in the, the commercial remote sensing regulation is missing from these regulations and including the rewrite of the regulations by commerce, which is underway right now, to make more robust commercial remote sensing, is any discussion of the words privacy or civil liberty. The goal is how can we make commercial remote sensors more capable and make their process less, less encumbered, right? We want to unfetter what they can do for us. So that's got to be part of our discussion, right, the regulatory pr process. And that leads me to making the satellite smart device information nexus the legislative pr priority. There's, you know, we're, we're um, uh, rapidly at a point where laws are being enacted right now or passed um, in states. We're ending up with very disjointed legislation. Um, the efforts to regulate satellite data in Hawaii were vetoed by the governor for commercial reasons, for complexities. Um, and so how do we make that a priority? How do we do that? And, and partly that is figuring out how do we take the existing federal domestic electronic surveillance privacy law scheme, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, and related legislation. How do we make sure that government can get data from satellites lawfully within you know, a framework that is consistent with the Constitution, constitutional privacy protections, the Fourth Amendment, obviously, First Amendment concerns addressed, and consistent with our concepts of privacy as expressed through the Electronic Communications Privacy Act. How, how do we make that consistent? And how do we do so in a way that also protects national security? Because we're in a situation where Strava, a startup fitness app, revealed 
multiple location bases, putting you know U.S. personnel in immediate danger. So this is a this is a problem that is affecting everyone. This isn't something that should be very um, you know uh, it's civil liberties advocates should be concerned about it. National security advocates should be concerned about it. And there is a common ground that should be found. And that we would suggest is through legislation. So as Julian said, there's a lot more in the paper. I was trying to give a quick overview here. And I know in the audience, I have lawyers, non-lawyers, and everyone of different levels. So if you have any questions, I'll be around. I'm happy to stick around. I, sorry, my co-authors couldn't be here as well. But thank you very much. So from the uh, uh, macro scale of, uh, of eyes in the sky to uh, more, more local monitoring, um, you know, we're accustomed to talking about Big Brother, thinking about um, surveillance and, and uh, threats to privacy from uh, you know, entities at the, at the national level, um, highly sophisticated agencies like NSA or FBI or CIA. Um, but you know, as often happens, uh, technology trickles down. Uh, the cutting-edge tech that is uh, used by you know, NASA or NSA uh, one year um, turns up uh, in consumer devices or uh, technology used by local uh, authorities uh, a few years down the road. Uh, so to discuss uh, facial recognition technology as uh, something uh, you know, worth, worth paying attention to at the local level, um, uh, there's uh, 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 Freddy Martinez of Open the Government who's going to talk about their uh, new guide for citizens to uh, investigating uh, the use of facial recognition in your own backyard. Freddy Martinez. Uh, thanks everyone for having us here today. Um, so um, we have been investigating the use of facial recognition technology across the country. We've sent hundreds of requests. And primarily what we've been finding is that um, although police departments do have access to this technology, um, we're finding it in new and surprising places, places that we didn't expect to be seeing. Um, and so we kind of wanted to address what, what are those places? Where should you be looking? If you're looking in your own backyard, um, where are those things that you, where are the couch cushions that you would not think to overturn um, to find those silver dollars? Um, so that's kind of what we'll be talking about today. Um, and um, so thanks for having us here. Um, I am Freddie Martinez. I work at Open the Government. Um, Open the Government is a nonpartisan coalition that works to strengthen democracy by empowering the public um, and promoting policies that create a more open, transparent, and accountable government. Um, so I'm a policy analyst there. Um, before I joined Open the Government, I spent about five and a half years, five years um, doing Freedom of Information Act requests on issues of surveillance and technology across the country. Um, this is a different conference I presented at in DC. Um, so this is sort of an issue that I've worked on closely for a great number of years. Um, Uh, so I wanted to start with this person. This is uh, his name is Chris Adzima. He's the senior information technology um, officer at a um, county called Washington um, County. It's in Oregon, 
And what he did in his free time was he decided to roll out a facial recognition system. Um, on nights and weekends, he wrote some computer code, some example code there, um, where he integrated his, um, he integrated the county's uh, mugshot data with Amazon's uh, facial recognition technology um, and just kind of rolled it out on his own, didn't ask anyone, there's no concerns about civil liberties, there's no requirements to let anyone know that this is happening. Um, just rolled it out, you know, wrote a blog post, reached out to Amazon. Um, and since then, he's sort of become an evangelist for Amazon. Um, and just, you know, this is kind of the future. This is kind of where we are with facial recognition technology, where you have um, sort of unelected officials just sort of deciding that this is a thing that they just want to roll out. Um, so that's kind of where we wanted to start. Um, and that's sort of why we have so many concerns. Um, and, and it's not just, you know, this person here. Um, so to that end, we created a couple of guides. Um, over the summer, um, we wrote a beginner introduction guide. So if you've never sent a FOIA request ever uh, or are not familiar with your state's free, uh, public records laws, um, we wrote a great resource that's, you know, seven pages. Um, where you not only go through what your rights are as a requester, but also um, what, you know, some of the specific language you might be using um, when you send a request on facial recognition, um, what are the specific vendors you might be interested in. Um, sometimes there's you know, a particular algorithm, but the name of the vendor is different than the technology. Um, so, so we have sample language there that you can use, and we have guides outside that you can take as well. Um, for anyone who's watching the live stream, you can um, click either of those links, um, and it'll take you to the respective project page. Um, after releasing the guide, we, um, are, as part of creating the guide, we also sent hundreds of requests to police departments across the country. Um, so we did this in conjunction with Muckrock News. Um, and they have, uh, and then we've created a project page where, you, again, you can take the same language, draft language that we've made, um, and if you're interested in particular policies or vendors, um, you can just copy and paste our language um, and investigate this stuff in your own backyard as well. Um, so again, you can click the links or grab the guides. I think we have some outside as well. Um, okay, so the sort of primary thesis here is that a lot of the ways that police departments access facial recognition technology is sort of indirectly. So I would um, naively say, send out a request if, um, and I would say, hey, let me see your invoices, I want to see your policies, I want to see your data sharing agreements. And then the police department would say something a little bit clever. They would say, well, we don't own this system and we don't intend to purchase it. Um, so if you took them at their word, you would say that they're not actually accessing or using this technology. Um, what that practically means, though, is that it's a very carefully phrased um, expression that they have not purchased it. It doesn't say anything about accessing data. It doesn't say anything about sharing data. It doesn't talk about um, other third parties that they might gain on this technology through. Um, so we wanted to talk a, a little bit about how that might look. Um, and then it should sort of fill in the blanks about what you might expect as you're doing this across the country. Um, so uh, go, going back to Chris at Zima again, um, in his presentation at Amazon, he was talking about integrating um, 
their data with other data. Um, so what we found out was that not only was Washington County rolling out um, its facial recognition data using um, Amazon, they were also building um, a system by which other counties could look at their data and they could look at other counties' data. So we found uh, the system, there, there's a caller agency, there's an agency right next to uh, Washington County called Clackamas County, they actually share a border, and they, uh, after they saw this presentation, they said, hey, will you come in, will you teach us how to do this, and we'll share you our mugshot data, you share us your mugshot data, um, and, you know, again, um, I don't, I can't, I don't know if you can see this highlighted, Clackamas County has no policies in place for um, controlling access or informing the public, they just did it on a test basis. Um, and so that's w one way that uh, we've noticed that police agencies share data is that they'll create ways for them to, you know, just read other, others' data without having to physically, you know, copy it or create any kind of policies around um, data access. Um, surprisingly, um, we were finding facial recognition technology in fusion centers. Um, so for those that might not know, fusion centers are only supposed to be sharing data, um, intelligence leads and the like. They're not actually, by statute, supposed to investigate crimes in any way. Um, and that's not what we're finding. Um, so in St. Louis, St. Louis Metro Police Department uh, does, again, does not have the technology, nor do they have plans to buy the technology, but they do have agreements with the fusion centers that the fusion centers can access their booking data and run facial recognition technology um, on people that are in jail in St. Louis or booked in, in the jail. Um, and that's surprising. I did not expect that a fusion center would have this technology, um, but it wasn't just us who was finding this. Two weeks ago, um, BuzzFeed News created a, um, a report where uh, surveillance cameras, ring cameras, um, you know, police departments are able to access this data, this video surveillance, surveillance footage, and then um, Chandler, Arizona, the police department, again, does not have access to facial recognition technology, but they were guessing that they could maybe send the data to the fusion center, the fusion center could run scans against it and then return data back to Chandler police based off of this ring data. Um, so, so again, surprising, um, knowing that, you know, fusion centers aren't supposed to investigate crime, but, um, you know, that's where we're, where we're finding it. Um, secondly, we were finding um, this private vendor, uh, DataWorks, in secret, trying to get other police departments to share data with themselves and coordinate regional task force. So um, here's LA sheriffs, um, uh, San Francisco Police, uh, who else is on here, San, uh, Sac Sacramento County is on here, um, and you know, you have this private vendor in secret organizing these task force. Um, this email is from two years ago, from 2017, um, and the article just came out in August of this year. Uh, also in August, September of this year, uh, San Francisco moved to ban the use of facial recognition by law enforcement. Um, in total, um, so it creates a lot of issues of secrecy um, where you have a private vendor in secret um, building out these private or sort of regional task force um, and in the public space you have people who don't want to use this technology. So it creates a lot of problems um, around uh, secrecy and 
public right to notice. Um, much like we saw in license plate readers, um, also in facial recognition contracts, we are seeing uh, contractual data sharing agreements, similar to like how I discussed earlier, but this is a, a slightly different here. Um, so um, for those who might not know, when license plate reader technology was being rolled out across the country, there would be this, this mandatory, uh, so Motorola is one of the largest license plate reader companies, and they have, I think, four billion images now in their license plate reader uh, databases. And the way that they build those four billion is, you know, one police department at a time, and then every one of them would collect 50,000 images a day, and then they would go to Motorola. And uh, much like license plate reader technology, we're seeing very similar kinds of language emerging in facial recognition contracts. Um, and this was uh, Veritone. I think this contract is out of Irvine, California. Um, so uh, I think a lot of the trajectory people are going to be talking about uh, in sort of regulating um, facial recognition technology, it's very similar to the problems we were seeing with uh, license plate reader. Um, Another way that we were finding this, we found three statewide initiatives um, where the attorney general of the state was the one who actually ran the program. So we found this. So Honolulu, again, police do not buy the technology. They don't plan on buying it. But uh, it's actually through the attorney general of Hawaii's Criminal Justice Data Center that um, runs the actual scans. We, saw, uh, we see a very similar system in Pennsylvania, um, which is there's a criminal justice network called JNet. Um, so again, every single law enforcement agency in Pennsylvania, uh, or sorry, uh, yeah, Pennsylvania has access to this technology, but of course none of them actually own it. Uh, Ohio is very similar as well. Um, so I, again, didn't think that the attorney general would be the one doing this, but apparently that is the case in at least three states. Um, other findings, um, training manuals are almost non-existent. We were able to find one, um, and this was a training manual from Lubbock, Texas. They sent police officers on a very vigorous eight-hour training session uh, to Vigilant Solutions, which is owned by Motorola now. Um, and at the end of those eight hours, they get 30 multiple choice questions. This was, I think, one of the only training documents we were able to get. So what we're finding um, across the country is that there seems to be very little training, but if there is training, it's being done by the vendors, um, and uh, I guess it's a multiple choice question, and that's, I guess, the best way to test proficiency with this technology. Um, other things that we've been finding is any kind of FOIA request for any kind of regulatory policies or um, just doesn't seem to exist. So we, we did have in our guide some language about how do you find policies and things like that. We almost universally got those denied. Um, I think we might have gotten five or six. Um, for the most part, any kind of FOIAs or public records requests you send on facial recognition, they'll treat it as, did you purchase it, yes or no? Um, and so that was really troubling. Um, and any discussion on bias, accuracy assessments, uh, there are none. I mean, there's no one's looking into any kind of dis like algorithmic uh, bias or anything like that on this technology at all. Um, so uh, again, we tried really hard. No one, like n 
you know, with policies, we got a handful. With bias and accuracy assessments, like none, zero. Um, so that's troubling for lots of for obviously lots of different reasons. Um, but if you do plan on doing this um, in your backyard, please look into that because so far that is a non-starter. I guess no one has any records on that or cares. Um, and then just briefly looking into the future use of facial recognition technology, we're seeing it being deployed by these private, I guess, rebel cop things that are patrolling malls in California. Um, it's got license plate reader and facial de detection software on there for some reason. Um, and, uh, you know, they scan, like, the parking lots of malls and things like that. I have no idea why, but that is a future use. Um, so it's not obviously not limited to law enforcement use. There's other commercial interests. Um, we're seeing real-time facial recognition being sold by or being pitched by Motorola, the idea being that um, if you want to prevent school shootings, um, you'll create a blacklist of people who should not be allowed into the school, and you'll create a geofence around the school, and you'll run real-time facial recognition on everyone coming into and out of the school and um, stop a shooting that way. That's the way they're selling it. They don't call it real-time facial recognition. I think they call it um, alert detection and geofencing, some really bizarre name that isn't what it is. Um, so you're, you're beginning to see that across the country as well. And for a long time, and finally for a long time, uh, police departments only use things like DMV photos um, and booking photos for their facial recognition databases, um, knowing that there was quite a, you know, the public would not like other things like data scraped off the internet, um, Facebook photos, and things like that. Um, being used for their facial recognition databases. And uh, we have stories coming out that will show that that is no longer the case. And so that sort of um, thing that we've been worrying about, that it's just we're only using it to catch, you know, criminals and things like that, that no longer seems to be the case. Um, and so you'll be hearing about that a lot more in the next coming months and weeks. Um, I think that's what we have. Uh, finally, I did want to mention that we do have, uh, again, outside, um, as well as on our website, some sort of recommendations for um, what we think needs to happen with this technology. I, I generally, um, Open the Government supports a moratorium on its acquisition. Uh, we know that this technology is complex and inaccessible to members of the public and to lawmakers, so we support things like... Um, additional funding for members of Congress so that they can actually investigate um, these problems. Um, we also support things like applying FOIA to private contractors so that um, we can learn more about these kinds of, um, these kinds of technologies. So uh, we strongly believe in expanding FOIA um, in general. Um, and with that, I think we have time for a few questions. Is that right? Five minutes, maybe? Okay. Okay, we'll be we'll be available for questions after. Thanks. We have a, yeah, we have what we have right now. Thanks so much, Freddie.